It's good to share with you again this morning. Uh, This morning we're looking at the passage that Rob has just um, presented and read for us, and it was uh, encouraging, written by the Apostle Peter, a fisherman. And as I prepared this over the last week or two, I was looking at fishermen, and I was looking at Peter, and I said, how did you get here? How this complex um, picture of a temple, and yet he was a culture in his day, of course, in which um, there was temples everywhere. And so you and I don't miss and look at a temple uh, here in Australia today. Maybe we might look at other things. But that's uh, just, just to give you a few little um, background um, points about the passage we're going to. It's written by Peter, of course. He's a fisherman. And yet God has touched him, this wonderful, wonderful man. Impulsive, I can imagine he was a very large man, perhaps. Uh, very strong fisherman. Uh, very much sense of impulsive let's get it done now and let's do it and as you get older and as you grow in the Lord Jesus things change and you see this uh, rough tough fisherman writing this probably with the help of a man called Silas we think and uh, and yet um, an incredible important letter for us to understand let us uh, just pray before we look at in detail let's pray oh God we thank you for the word that is before us preserved for us written down for us by your faithful servants. And O oh God, open our eyes that we might see and our ears that we might hear in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll also um, just refer to this a uh, couple of poems that I'll refer to. They're inside your um, bulletin this morning. And um, I will be referring to both of those. And you might want to stick them on the fridge at home just to remind yourself at times or in your study uh, very well written poems by two very godly men in our community uh, this day. Uh, a few weeks ago I spoke and mentioned a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran pastor imprisoned by the Germans in Nazi Germany during the war and he was charged with plotting to assassinate Luther, um, Adolf Hitler in a group uh, within the Russian, uh, sorry, the, the German Defence Force at that time, the German Defence Public Service as it was. And he was imprisoned in Nazi Germany. And he communicated to his friends and his family through books by just putting dots and pages on different letters. And that, so it was like a book library. And he had this special code that would go out that people knew and the Germans didn't know. And he wrote this poem, which we're going to have a look at, Who Am I? And he wrote this in in prison. He asked this question, Who Am I? Good question, isn't it? Who am I? If you ask uh, yourself that question, you might say, Well, I am Bill Smith, and I work up the road, and I'm the plumber to this local area. Or you might say, I'm married to Pete James, and he's um, a great bloke. Who am I? Or if it's to a group of people, you might say, I belong to that mob over there. That's the expression we're using in Australia today, isn't it? I belong to that mob. I wonder which mob that you belong to. Well, I belong to the mob of Joneses at your Monday on top of the hill. Three girls um, and the, all the rest of the blokes is me and the animals. And that's my mob. How do you answer that question as we come back? Who am I? If you look on that, your sheet, the first poem, uh, he writes, this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as he reflects, as he's in this jail. 
as perhaps he waits his certain death. And he writes this. Who am I? They often tell me I step from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly, as though it was mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equitably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really that which other men tell of? Or am I only that I myself know of myself, restless, longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath, as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colours, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighbourlessness, tossing in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and another person tomorrow? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and by before myself a contemptible woe-begone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. Wonderful conclusion there, isn't it? Thou knowest, O God, I am thine. Thine. He concludes, he concludes he belongs to God. A short, pithy, conclusive sentence. End of story. In all of this business around me, I belong to God. Thou knowest, O God, I am thine. That's what he finds strength in. Not in his outward demeanour. Not on how people perceive him, not on his inward struggles or his feelings, but the fact he knows he belongs to God. I am thine. He belongs to God. That's the conclusion of the matter. He is not the captain of his soul. God is his captain and there is his rest. There is his peace. I wonder this morning if you can say that. I wonder if I can say that. I hope we all can say that. Peter's letter in front of us today is also written in the context of the believer's identity 2,000 years ago of whom one is. Also written in the context of persecution as Bonhoeffer was before the Nazis. And the same conclusion is Peter to the persecuted believers who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire were, you belong to God. I belong to God. Well, let me show you how Peter arrives at that conclusion. Now, the context of his book is that the early Christians were scattered abroad throughout the Roman Empire. We know that Saul, the Pharisee, and who became later Paul, the Apostle, he was at the heart of it until, of course, we know he was converted. Many of the Christian people had fled from uh, Judea. They had fled to other 
places of Asia and into places like Turkey, which we'll look at in a minute. And you can check out the book of Acts, if you like, to find out the details as uh, you read about Paul coming uh, and or Saul coming and the Christians being spread throughout the empire. And here we find Peter sending a letter and it's going out to people who have fled Judea. And here is his letter to us today. His letter here in Tawantin. It's gone from Turkey to Tawantin. We talk about today sending people across to Turkey, don't we? In fact, we've got interests in missionaries going to Turkey. Well, here is a letter coming from Turkey to you and to I today, or went to Turkey originally. And the passage in detail from verses 4 through to 12, we find that Peter talks about believers belonging to God. Belonging to God. I belong to thee. And also belonging to one another. Cemented together in God's love, just like stones in a building. But we find that Peter shows that this building that we're talking about is God's building. And he uses this picture of a temple. And as I've already related, a temple for you and I is a little bit difficult to understand. Unless, of course, you've been through Asia today, that you'll probably see Hindu temples and other things. Um, or you're a historian, you know about the effects of uh, these temples. But we've given this temple picture And the stones within this spiritual temple are believers, just like people you and I, all those who would trust in the Lord Jesus. We know that this reference that Peter gives includes Old and New Testament believers all through history, all people who would bend their knee to the Lord Jesus. The Old Testament people, of course, they looked forward to Jesus' coming. We look back... At his coming, and we also look forward to his future coming. And here is a picture of the temple that Peter uses. It's a metaphor of God's family where people meet God, where God's people meet each other, where God's praises are proclaimed, where God's word is upheld. And it's ultimately a place of belonging, belonging to God and belonging to one another. I belong to you, you belong to me. We belong in God's family and we're gathered here today as God has called us aside out of the world together. Now we've heard God's people described in other parts of Scripture, haven't we? As sheep, do you like that illustration? Do you like being related to uh, God's family as sheep? As stewards, as a citizen of a kingdom, also as a family. And of course, here we have this image of living stones made up as God's temple. But we see it's not a physical building, isn't it? It is a spiritual building where God dwells in amidst his people. This is great and it's mysterious, but it's an amazing fact. God dwells in our midst. Now think with me for a moment. This letter, as I've already said, has come from Turkey to Tawantin, in a sense, because it was written from Peter, wherever he was, went to Turkey. Now we've got it here. We're reading a letter over 2,000 years old. It's not a letter that's been directly written to the Christians at Tawantin. 
But the principles here that he writes are very clearly to you and I today as they were to the persecuted people who had been pushed out by uh, Saul and his cronies at the birth of the church. We would know his Jewish uh, listeners, as they heard this letter talking to about the temple, they would have had an affinity, of course, with the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Huge temple that had been there for years. It had been knocked down once, it had been rebuilt. In fact, in recent times, I think it took 40 or 50 years to be rebuilt uh, by Herod, ultimately. And the Gentile listeners, they too would have been familiar with some sort of temple. Now, if they were Greek, they would have been probably uh, familiar with the temple of Athena or the temples of Athens, of Athena. Uh, Temples and gods were everywhere. So in this day, if you want to, temples were just common. So really, when I was wrestling with the whole idea, what are you doing with this idea of temple, Peter, the fisherman? It's pretty common. It's common back there. Not as common as you and I would see today. Jewish hearers then were familiar with the temple in Jerusalem. The Gentile hearers were familiar with temples in Athens or somewhere else. This temple was a place of worship where one would meet God or gods in the case of, uh, uh, of the Greeks. A place of worship, of bowing down. Worship to Yahweh or in the Greeks case Zeus or Olympia, whoever else. In either instance, we see the temple is seen to be as a great place, a building standing out for one's attention. Um, I think in the Greek case, uh, the bigger the temple, the bigger the God. And that was trying to show, I think one town or one city tried to show off they had the bigger God. But as I've sort of alluded to already, this temple idea, we don't really relate to all that well. It's pretty foreign. The average Aussie is more likely to understand worship, perhaps, down at uh, the Brisbane Cricket Ground or at Lang Park. Uh, although perhaps they might say they're not worshipping. Uh, they, they are certainly bowing down to their idols in the sense to their football players as they go and see them. Not knocking you if you support a football team, by the way. But I'm just trying to relate how people devote themselves. I heard of a story of a man who uh, would not go to church on a Sunday. He would instead he'd go and play bowls. You know, the bowls out there on the, uh, uh, on the lawn green. And um, he, one mate and one Australian went said this. He said, Bill, stop bowing down to old Jack. He's not going to help you. You need to bow down to the Lord Jesus. Well, those who bow down to the Lord Jesus, you and I, we note that this scripture declares them as living stones with their elder brother, the Lord Jesus. Described, Jesus is described as a precious stone there in verse 4. One who, in fact, has been rejected by many and, in fact, he's become a stumbling block for many. Jewish leaders were one group who found Jesus a stumbling block and they tried to trip him up so much. In fact, they, we know that they sought to kill him. Paul the Apostle went in pursuit of the Christians only to be confronted by the living stone. In today, in our community, people without God, and we would refer this to the natural man without being born of God's spirits, basically has this attitude. I can do it myself. I'm a self-made man. 
I'm a captain of my soul. And the Bible would say that this position is a foolish position to take. But here is a house of God described here by Peter as a building made up of living stones. You and I are seen to be saints in the biblical sense. And the cornerstone holding this spiritual building together is the Lord Jesus Christ. He binds us together. We're all different, but he binds us together. And there needs to be a strong foundation in the spiritual house, as in any house. Now, I know those in this congregation who've been involved in the building industry know that you need to have adequate footings or you need to have an adequate foundation stone in, in, in buildings, in building a building, otherwise it's going to fall down. And in this picture that we're given here of this temple, we've got the Lord Jesus seen as the cornerstone. He holds it all together and all the other stones, you and I, all believers, build upon the Lord Jesus and we are building together. We build our Christian community, our lives around the Lord Jesus. Would you have a look around this building this morning? What do you see on the walls? Well, that's covered here. You see besser bricks, don't you? Boring besser bricks. Well, they're not so boring because they hold this building up. And if you went down underneath, behind the, sort of the Sunday school, you see a heck of a lot of cement going into the foundation and uh, holding this building up, very, very important. Now, if we took two or three of those stones away, all of a sudden we would get more noise and we might get wind. Okay, there's a difference. Well, if we took the footings away from the church a building under downstairs, the place would soon crumble and fall down. Stones, foundations, you need them in the building. And, of course, you need them a good foundation in your life in order that everything holds together. Now, I've just asked you to look at the building around here in Besser Bricks, but have a look around the congregation here this morning. Have a look. Everyone here who trusts in the Lord Jesus is a living stone. We all contribute to the worship in this place. If Phil just turned up or anyone else just turns up by themselves, it doesn't happen. We all come and worship is brought together as a community. And we all contribute to the exaltation of God, his son. And there's a reference in verse 9 that we belong like to the priesthood. We together are like to the world as Christ shines through us as a community of believers. Now, each of us is different. The best of bricks aren't really different. They're pretty standard fare. But everyone here in the congregation is different. But, of course, we have the unity of Christ Jesus as our cornerstone. You and I have different gifts to serve one another, to help one another. Christ Jesus remains the cornerstone. And as we look around this congregation, no one is boring. Have a look at me. My stepmother would said to Janet before she married me, this is not going to be a boring life for you. We're all different. We come in many shapes. We come, uh, but we come to the Lord Jesus. And we come to him in the sense we come broken and then he fixes us up. And he then makes us in his own image. The glue that holds us together, the cornerstone, the cement, we're cemented together. There's a story 
uh, from history of the king of Sparta in ancient Greece, who boasted to a king, uh, to a monarch, about the mighty walls of Sparta. And the guest looked around Sparta and said, where are these walls? And he finally said, come on, you've got to show them to me. And the Sparta ruler proudly pointed out to his troops. They are well trained and disciplined. And he said, there they are. There the wall, or they are the wall of Sparta. And the moral of that tale, of course, is that each Spartan soldier was viewed as a brick in the mighty war of Sparta. And so they were seen, I guess we see this comparison of living stones. They were bricks in the Sparta war. We are the living stones that make up God's people, God's church, God's family, held by the Lord Jesus, the cornerstone, built in a spiritual house. Now, Peter, with this image of a cornerstone, of a temple, is not alone. In fact, you can go back to Isaiah the prophet. This is what Isaiah the prophet said so many years before. He said this. This is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I will lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation, and the one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. It's written something at least 700 years before. Another one from Psalm, another verse from Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected, the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. And Jesus himself in Matthew 12, 42 to 44, he said this. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvellous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. In this scripture that Peter writes, we can see that you and I can have confidence in this cornerstone. This one who has been declared precious by God. This one has been rejected by man. In verses 6 and 7, there's this uh, uh, reference to being not ashamed or dismayed when you and I might experience trial because we have such a strong foundation. I think in the King James it says confounded. You will not be confounded. Uh, We have a very strong foundation to depend our lives on. Nothing in this world is as secure except the Lord Jesus Christ. No human philosophy is secure. No politicians is secure. No false religion is secure. Don't waste your time on sinking sands, says one great preacher. Build your house upon the rock, on the Lord Jesus, that will not fall over. And whenever a storm comes, even death itself, you won't be disappointed. Commonwealth Bank, I think back in the 80s and 90s, some of you might remember that. It's, uh, one of its slogans was this, get with the strength. You come put your money with us, you will be strong for you. Well, here we find the Lord Jesus. Here's the cornerstone for you and for me to lay our life's foundations upon. Upon the rock that will never move in a world of quicksand. One who will never let you down. You will never be confounded. In fact, you'll find that your life will be empowered 
and you'll go forward to glorify him. And you will uh, advance the kingdom. Verse 9 says that you and I have a role to play of worship, a proclamation of praise. You are a chosen generation. You've been chosen out of this world. You are a royal priesthood. Again, you and I probably don't really understand a royal priesthood. But it means we just come and we praise God. We worship him. We listen to his word. We proclaim his word. So then you and I are in the building of building each other up, of encouraging each other, each living stone different in the faith. And we are in the business of becoming the light on the hill that draws others out of darkness into his light. Now, the Labour Party, I think, has used this and they've taken this slogan. I think from the late 1800s it was taken that the Labour Party would be the light on the hill. I'm not going down political lines, I'm just telling you facts. And it came from the Bible. But Christians are the true, through Christ, are the true light on the hill. He has called you, he has called me out of darkness into a great light. And because of that, because of the change of Christ comes into my life, I reflect that light. And we together are a bright light. You get a whole heap of um, uh, little coals together and you put them together, they're going to have a brighter light than one that's out there and it's cut by itself. And we are involved. You are involved. I am involved. Not necessarily building a building of a church, but we're involved very much building God's church, his people. Uh, So then God's house is extended. In the United States, there's a story of a lady called Sarah Winchester who inherited the family fortune of the Winchester rifle. And in the 1880s, she inherited something like $20 million. Imagine that in 1880, $20 million. And Sarah moved to California, and there she bought an eight-room farmhouse plus 160 adjoining acres. She then hired 16 carpenters or builders and put them to work. They worked non-stop, around the clock, for 38 years. Listen to this. They worked 24-7 to build a mansion. And when she died, Sarah had a house of something over six acres, six kitchens, 13 bathrooms, 40 stairwells, 47 fireplaces, 52 skylights, 460 serving doors, Guess how many windows there were? 10,000 windows. Imagine cleaning that. 160 rooms and a bell tower. And the house was still being built when she died. You can look it up on the internet. Go and have a look at it. It's huge. God's house is yet to be finished. The house you and I are in. With more and more added when people come to faith in the Lord Jesus. His uh, house has been going on. For thousands of years, a room here, a fireplace there, a staircase there, and each of us built on the work that's already been carried out. Paul the Apostle, we started off, and he started off, of course, we're talking about Saul, the persecutor. Here we have Paul the Apostle, saying a different man, really, because he's been converted. And here are his words. words. He says this, I planted, Apollos watered, God Gave the increase. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building according to the grace which God has given me as a wise builder. I have laid the foundation. 
You and I are believers in the Lord Jesus, the cornerstone. You and I are part of the Lord's house, God's spiritual house, and we are chosen. And he has had mercy upon you. He's had mercy upon me. And how because of that, because we are living stones in his temple, as if it were, in his house, we are fellow labourers in extending his house. We are chosen by God. We are indwelt by God. We work together. We seek to display the glory of God, what he's done in our lives and what he's doing through others. We proclaim him. We introduce him to others. Each week we proclaim the word of God. He working through you. He working through me. And because of this fact, because of this fact that we're precious, oh, Jesus is precious, we're chosen. Here's a foundation stone. We're very different to the world out there who don't know the Lord, who are more natural than spiritual, because you and I are born from above. And in verse 11 and 12, we're described as being alien, foreigners in this world. Are there times in your life you just groan in yourself to be with God? Because there's so much war, disease, upset, insecurity. Verse 11 and 12, we have these words. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits you. The early Christian believers were falsely accused of cannibalism as they celebrated Holy Communion. Believers were executed and persecuted because they would not bow down to Caesar the King. They were aliens. Christians today die today throughout our world for standing up for the Lord Jesus. Christians back then were known for their love and for their commitment in the face of great persecution. They were known for their honesty. And yet, in spite of that, Christians were said they were People of treason and they were burnt to the stake. They were fed to the lions. The Christians during Roman times stood out. They were distinctive. You and I are distinctive in our world too, the way that we treat one another and the world we live in. So then, in answer to the question, what does it mean to belong to God's family? It, belongs, it means that you and I belong to him. Like stones cemented together, held by the cornerstone. That means you and I are in his house. We have a foundation for our lives. And that we will never regret building our lives upon him. We are not dormant. We are living. God comes and he lives in you, dwells within you. And you come and you today, you sing his praise, you uphold his word, you fellowship with one another and you take on your heavenly father's traits, traits so different from this world. There's a final poem that we're going to look at. I might ask Phil to put that. We're going to read it together. It's going up here. And uh, this is uh, written by a theologian. I think he's preaching. He's one of the teachers in the United States, Don Carson. And you can either look on your sheet or you can look up here. And as I read it, I ask that you might um, read this t- 
together with me. It's a bit like an affirmation creed, really, what we believe. And it's about the passage that we've just read. So I will start. Please feel free to join me. He is the stone, the living stone, God's chosen precious cornerstone. The builders cast the stone away, but Christ the capstone still holds sway. The capstone still holds sway. And all who trust him find the same, that they are never put to shame. But those who disobey his call, he is the rock that makes them fall. He is the rock that makes them fall. We are the stones, the living stones, for all our sin his death atones. Now Jesus Christ has made us light, transforming our immoral night, transforming our immoral night. A holy nation, royal priests like the greatest and the least. We sing his praise, his grace applaud. We are the temple of God. We are the temple of God. Amen.